Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. last 2016 edition of Learning Well on Edge Blog Talk Radio, which is sponsored by the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm your host, Elise Markham-Johns, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us this evening during what I'm sure is a very busy holiday season. We hope our monthly conversations on our Learning Well program will continue to provide both interesting and practical information for you and your family and friends as you pursue your health and wellness journey in the coming year. We're especially pleased you could be with us tonight for a conversation with Leslie Michelson, who is the author of The Patient's Playbook. Mr. Michelson's life work has been devoted to helping people achieve superior medical outcomes at every stage of their lives. And just some of the things that we'll touch on tonight are how to find a great primary care physician, which is absolutely crucial, and specific steps we need to take when a serious illness strikes. He'll also help us with the resources, advice, and tools we need to make better medical decisions. I also wanted to let you know that over the next several months, some outstanding leaders and innovators in the field of integrative health and wellness will be joining us on our Learning Well program. Duke University's Executive Director of Integrative Medicine, Dr. Adam Perlman, will be our guest on February 7th. Dr. Perlman was our guest last March, and we had such a positive response to that conversation that we invited him back for a part two conversation this February. Dr. Michael Pincus will be with us on March 7th. Dr. Pincus recently hosted a PBS special called Feel Better with Pressure Point Therapy. And over the years, Dr. Pincus has found a way to make Eastern medicine practices easy to understand and accessible to the layperson. And he'll talk with us about pressure point therapy techniques to relieve pain in various areas of our bodies. On April 4th, Amy Morin will join us. We'll focus on information from her best-selling book called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, a pioneer in the field of integrative health, will be our guest on May 2nd. We'll always announce upcoming guests on our program, and future guests will also be announced each month in our monthly e-letter called Health eSource. And if you'd like to receive this newsletter, you can sign up by sending an email to ncal at normandale.edu and ask to be a subscriber. And speaking of upcoming guests, please join us for our next program on Tuesday, January 3rd with our guest, Chris Taylor. Chris will provide some information to help us meet one of life's greatest challenges, finding our unique path which can give our life true meaning. Since our Learning Well programs are archived, you can explore past conversations with such leaders in the field of health and wellness as Dr. Michael Roizen and Dr. Michael Greger. Dr. Roizen is the Cleveland Clinic's Chief Wellness Officer and author of This Is Your Do-Over, The Seven Secrets to Losing Weight, Living Longer, and Getting a Second Chance at the Life You Want. Dr. Greger is author of How Not to Die, which looks at the 15 top causes of death in America and the best nutritional and lifestyle interventions for prevention. If you wish to check out these and other archived Learning Well programs, simply Google Edge Talk Radio Learning Well Archives. The Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale, which sponsors our program, not only provides classes in literally hundreds of areas of health and wellness for anyone interested in exploring these areas, but also offers classes for those who wish to proceed to the next level of education. I wanted to share with you just a few of the upcoming class opportunities at the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis. On December 8th, from 6 to 8 p.m., there's a class on the art of muscle testing, emotional balancing, part two, and this workshop is a continuation of part one for emotional balancing. 
this you do not have to take part one in order to to attend this class however this class will provide information on how it's possible to help control emotional stress through muscle testing techniques and you'll be able to experience how color and gentle acupressure can relieve past or present pain and trauma and even future performance anxiety. On December 10th from 9 to 4, there'll be an energy medicine certificate class called Energy Anatomy uh, Channels, and you will learn about the two main energy channels, the meridians and the natus, which support and determine our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. You'll also learn the interesting historical and scientific evidence of these carriers of healing and thought as you learn ways to apply this information in energy work itself. And on December 10th from 8.30 to 4, there'll be a Kisage with Spring Forest Qigong class. This class focuses on the 12 major energy channels or healing buttons on your body that you can press to release stress, relieve pain, prevent a cold, increase your energy, and help you to heal faster and more completely from illness. This interactive session will help you to learn about these healing points and how to stimulate them in a specific order that will enhance the benefits. For more information about these and other classes and programs at the Integrative Health Education Center at Normadale, please call 952-358-8343 or Email Normandale at www.normandale.edu forward slash CE forward slash classes. Well, we are delighted to have as our guest tonight, Leslie Michelson. Mr. Michelson is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Private Health Management, which is a unique patient-focused company that has helped thousands of people obtain exceptional medical care. His recent book, The Patient's Playbook, How to Save Your Life and the Lives of Those You Love, distills his three decades of experience as a medical case management expert into actionable steps and practical tools that will empower readers everywhere to achieve the best possible health outcomes at every stage of life. He frequently speaks to audiences around the world, providing life-saving information and a revolutionary approach to medical decision-making. Leslie Michelson has been involved in almost all aspects of the healthcare system, starting at age 29 when he served as Special Assistant to the General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, a position he held during the Carter and Reagan administrations. And since then, he's founded and led four entrepreneurial healthcare companies focusing on improving quality of care. He was CEO of the Prostate Cancer Foundation, the world's largest source of philanthropic support for prostate cancer research, and he's been an active investor, advisor, and board member for many other companies. He's on the advisory board of the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and the board of the ALS Therapy Development Institute. He received his BA from Johns Hopkins University and a JD from Yale Law School. Mr. Michelson, after reading your book, I would absolutely recommend it as a resource we should all have on our bookshelves. So I'm delighted you can be with us this evening to share some extremely valuable information from your book with our listeners. Thank you for being with us. Elise, I love what you do, and it's truly my privilege. Oh, thank you. Well, as I mentioned, you're the founder, chairman, and CEO of a company called Private Health Management, which is indeed a unique patient-focused company dedicated to helping individuals and corporate clients obtain excellent medical care. But if you would, please tell us more about your company and how you go about doing what you do and also who would benefit from using your company's services. Sure. We founded Private Health Management almost 10 years ago now because we saw the difference between the care that people got and the outcomes they received when they were effective healthcare consumers and the quality and the, the mistakes that got made and the unfortunate consequences when people didn't know how to engage with the healthcare delivery system. So we founded the company to be patient advocates. We're not in the insurance business. We we're totally unbiased in that we have relationships with top physicians across the country and around the world, but allegiance to none. So we get brought in in really two situations. We get brought in by corporations who put us on an annual retainer to make our quality enhancement, patient navigation, patient advocacy services 
available to all their employees and their dependents, no matter what they need from a simple rash or an upper respiratory infection to an, oh, my God, a diagnosis of cancer, a bad car accident, um, for, or a heart attack. Or we get brought in by individuals and families. We generally get brought in when they've got a significant issue, a cancer diagnosis, a cardiovascular event, somebody with a, a behavioral disorder, symptoms nobody can figure out, um, diabetes, arthritis, whatever it might be. And we array resources to guide people to getting the very, very best care. And I, we were talking before the show started, and I share with you that I just found out that you'd done a PBS special, which is also available to our listeners. So I just wanted to make sure that people were aware of that as well. You can access it on YouTube, and my hunch is that the um, PBS.org would also have it as well. But I want to thank you for sharing your information via that outlet as well. Um, your personal history led to your interest in patient advocacy. And I think it would be interesting for our listeners to hear about the family situations that triggered your interest in this field. You know, it's, it's interesting. I had a wonderful upbringing, although it wasn't without its stress. And it's that precise stress that gave me my life's mission and enabled me to work so diligently and so hard to help other people. When I was born, my, my mother went into a postpartum depression. And when she came out of that, she was diagnosed as being bipolar. So she had a tough life because that's really a terrible, terrible diagnosis. And I started with helping my dad take care of her when I was about 10 or 11 years old. I had to grow up early and quickly because she at times was, was so sick. Many, many days, many years she was fine, but there were others where she wasn't. So I learned the importance of doing that. And then everything changed when I was a senior in high school. My dad came home one night and and looked very depressed and very down, which was very destabilizing to me because he was my source of stability. And I asked what was wrong, and he told me he'd been to the cardiologist that day, and the cardiologist told him he needed to have open-heart surgery. Now, I was an 18-year-old kid, a senior in high school in suburban New Jersey. I didn't know what that was, but it sure sounded scary to me. So I got home from school the next day. I called the chairman of cardiology at a major hospital in New York, the only hospital whose name I knew, I got his scheduling administrator, and I asked her if I could schedule an appointment for my dad to get a consultation. And sure enough, we scheduled it. My dad went in to see the doctor, and he came home that night and told me that the doctor, the chairman of cardiology at a major institution, said there was nothing wrong with his heart, and he didn't need the procedure. So my dad didn't have the surgery. He lived almost 40 more years. He never had heart disease. He died of something totally unrelated. He never had high blood pressure. He never had elevated cholesterol. There was absolutely nothing wrong with his heart. And every day that I had with him was a particularly precious day because I knew that one phone call that I had made changed the entire history of my life, his life, our family, his many grandchildren, and everybody else who he touched in those four decades. Wow. So this diagnosis that he received, had he gone to a community hospital, a smaller hospital? What was the situation? Well, he'd gone to, uh, we lived in suburban New Jersey. He went to a cardiologist who was practicing at one of the major hospitals. And it was early in the days of open heart surgery. And the doctors didn't quite know which patients might need it and which might not. And um, you know, I subsequently learned uh, 20 years later, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my career, what I could do that would be meaningful. I read an article that was published by uh, the Health, Re Health Services Research Group at the Rand Corporation, published in one of the major peer-reviewed academic journals, which showed that about 30% to 45% of all heart surgeries were either unnecessary or counterproductive. And when I read that article, Elise, it was like there were fireworks going off. There were kettle drums banging. It was, mm -hmm. my gosh, the th that seminal event in my youth wasn't an isolated event. Wow. My dad was not alone. There were a lot of people who were having that happen to them. It turned out that I was so scared and so courageous. I was the kid who picked up the phone and stopped my dad from having the procedure that I am sure would have shortened, not lengthened his life. But mm. there are other people who just didn't have that happen. So since then, most of my working hours 
have been spent in making sure that that doesn't happen to other people, that other families don't have their stability impaired by medical mistake, unnecessary care. And it turns out that if I could do it at age 18, everybody can do it. That's a phenomenal story. And, you know, I have to share with you that um, I was going to a cardiologist in Minneapolis who I have tremendous respect for. And the last time I went in to see her, she... um, we were at that point we're we're moving we're now in Arizona but at that point I told her we were moving and she asked where we were moving I told her she said you know I'm 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 glad you're moving where you're moving she said because frankly I have a lot of patients who come they're snowbirds and they come back to Minnesota in the summer but they go down to Florida in the the winter and she said I can't tell you how many patients I've had who have had unnecessary medical procedures done and it was clear she was heartsick about it uh and it it stunned me that frankly she'd share that information with me but um very, very interesting. And I wonder if those figures have changed at all. Virtually every study that has looked at the problem comes up with roughly the same data. Oh, um, there's a recent study which just showed that about 30 or 40% of all antibiotics are unnecessary and counterproductive. Hmm. So you go into the doctor, you've got upper respiratory infection, you've got a cold, you're feeling pretty lousy. And you want the doctor to do something because you want to get better. And all too often, that results in a physician taking out a prescription pad and writing a script for an antibiotic when the problem that you have is viral and not bacterial. And there's absolutely nothing that an antibiotic can do for a bacterial infection. The one problem it creates is that it may result in you developing a worse um, situation because you've introduced a drug into your body that shouldn't be there. And mm. you can get, you know, non-responsive antibiotics. You can get, you know, you know drug-resistant um, infections as a result of that. So you're making yourself worse, not because anybody's evil. There's no malice. It's just a problem that happens. And that's why I encourage every patient to be vigilant about it. As I say in the PBS special, my mission in life is to make sure that each and every one that listens to me Gets the doesn't get too much care, doesn't get the wrong care, the right care each and every time that they need care. And that's the measure of excellence. You share the information in your book that in a 2000 article, a year 2000 article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, it was reported that the number of Americans who needlessly die each year due to medical errors and adverse events such as unnecessary surgeries or fatal infections and the like, is 225,000 people, which is akin to a jumbo jet crashing and killing everyone on board once a day, 365 days a year. And it makes medical error the third leading cause of death in the U.S. behind heart disease and cancer. Are we any safer today in that regard? Those are shocking, absolutely shocking statistics. And every time I hear them, every time I talk about them, even though this is what I do for my career, for my life, I'm equally shocked. But I think they're true. Virtually every single study that has reviewed these issues has found error rates at roughly that rate. And, And what we need to do, part of my mission, one of the reasons I'm so glad to be on your show, is to ring the warning siren to get everybody aware of this issue. And everybody who's involved in the healthcare delivery system needs to change what they're doing in order to address the problem. And the people that we're speaking to are, you know, maybe well people today, but they'll be patients at some point in time. There are specific things that each and every one of us can do to make sure that we don't become one of those terrible statistics. So, for example, if you need to go into a hospital, It's a bit of a paradox because hospitals are the facilities in the world that make the biggest difference in improving people's health. When you go to a hospital and you need a procedure, you need a treatment, that's a place where they can save lives. But there are also places where a lot of mistakes get made. So what I encourage everybody to do in the Patient's Playbook, on my website, patientsplaybook.com, and in my podcasting, No Mistake Zone, what I encourage everyone to do is if you're going to be in the hospital, Bring someone with you. 
bring an advocate with you, a loved one, a neighbor, a relative, somebody you work with who's going to be your advocate, who's going to make sure that your medical chart is accurate and the allergies that you have are accurately listed there. The medications you're taking are listed there to make sure that every single medication that you're given has been approved by the attending physician. And if you're in room 248A, they aren't giving you the medicine for the person in 248B, which happens, okay? Not because people are malicious, but mistakes happen. Make sure that every test is one that's medically necessary and that if your symptoms are changing, if you're developing a rash, if you're building a fever, if the pain is getting a lot worse when it should be getting a lot better, that they can talk to the nurses, talk to the doctors, make sure that everyone is coordinated and you don't become one of those statistics, that there aren't mistakes being made. You know, there's a fine line as I hear you talk about that. I think about a situation where you're in the hospital and obviously most of us who are in the hospital are scared, we're worried, and yet if we are able to ask those kinds of questions, I'm sure some of us would think, oh, my gosh, what are they going to think of me, you know, that I'm pestering them with all these questions, and are they going to treat me worse if they think I'm questioning them? I mean, what's your reaction to that kind of thing? You know, when you handle it properly, it's a non-issue. I deal with physicians and nurses every single day of the year. When I say that, I really mean about 365 days. And they all tell me the same thing. They're working as hard as they can with as much heart and as much intelligence as they possibly can to get people the best care, but they don't have the resources they need to get it done. Mm -hmm. So if you approach them in a respectful and responsible way and let them know that you're there to partner with them to help you get the very best medical care, you're going to get a very, very warm reception. So this is not about second-guessing. This is about having highly respected, revered experts, professionals in our society who need the partnership of their clients to enable these professionals to deliver the highest quality care. And when you present it that way, you're going to get the kind of response that you'd be enthusiastic about. That is comforting to to hear you say that. And in your book, you talk about the importance of finding a great primary care physician. And I I was a little startled by that, I have to admit. So can can you share with our readers or our listeners why is this so important and, and how do you go about finding a great primary care physician? Very important question. So we don't know what's going to happen to you today, tomorrow, next week. When you're driving home tonight, we don't know if that car behind you on the road is going to hit their brakes in time. We don't know if there's a cell in your body that's going to divide in a quirky way and give you cancer. We don't know if you're going to develop an autoimmune condition or you're going to twist your ankle when you're going out for your morning jog or you're walking the dog in the evening. We don't know any of that. But what we do know is that you need a primary care physician. That's the person who should be the quarterback of your healthcare delivery system. That's the person who should make sure that you're benefiting from early, early, early detection and prevention modalities that we know save lives. That's somebody who should make sure that you're getting the vaccines that you need and somebody who's monitoring all kinds of things over time to make sure that you're staying well. So, for example, over time, you know, a lot of us develop a little high blood pressure. Our cholesterol might get a little too high. You know, you get a little paunchy, you put on a little weight because you're not getting the exercise you should. Maybe you're eating a little too much. And maybe the stress of life today, which is hard for everyone, is beginning to take its toll on you. If you have a right relationship with a primary care physician, they will be able to detect that with you. They'll listen to you. They'll tell you, you know, you cannot continue to gain five pounds a year because if you do that for 10 years, you're going to gain 50 pounds, and that isn't going to work for you. So what, here's a couple of suggestions that you can get on with. Or if you find out that the stress is becoming too great, they can become your partner in wellness. And if the God forbid should happen, if you should get a significant diagnosis, breast cancer, asthma, diabetes, lung cancer, prostate cancer, whatever it might be, it's your primary care physician who should have the responsibility of directing you to the very most qualified specialist in your community to get you a definitive diagnosis of what you have and help coordinate the care that you get so you get the very best outcome. 
And without a primary care physician, you really can't do all of that. And what are your suggestions, Leslie, for how do you go about finding someone that you have that kind of trust in and can develop that kind of partnership with? You know, it's surprisingly very similar to the way you find other respected professionals in your life. It's a three-step process. I've used it many times, and it really works. Step one, take out a piece of paper and write down on that piece of paper the things that are most important to you in a primary care physician. A couple of thoughts. It should be somebody who listens to you because a lot of primary care is a cognitive service. Listening to a patient tell you about what's going on in their lives. The second thing is it's somebody that you need to listen to because if you don't have enough respect for them and they tell you, you know, your cholesterol is continuing to creep up and this is not going to be healthy over time, there are changes that you need to make in your diet, in your exercise routines. If you're not going to listen to them, then the relationship is not going to have the benefit that it should. And it may very well be that you want them to be in network in your insurance plan. You want them to have office hours that work for you and a location that works and all those things. So first, write down what you're looking for. Second, and people are reluctant to do this, but it, it works virtually every time. Talk to friends, neighbors, relatives, other physicians who you like, and ask them who they use for their primary care physician and how they like the experience. Talk to eight or ten people. Think through that time you were having coffee with someone, and she said, you know, I love my primary care physician, and here's why. Or the time that you overheard a conversation at the water cooler at work, or if you're a woman and you have a good relationship with your OBGYN, call into that person's office and ask him or her who they use. You'd be surprised how often that results in a good match for you. So that's step two. And then after you go online to make sure that they're board certified, that they don't have any administrative proceedings against them. And on the patientsplaybook.com, we give you specific directions as to how to find those websites, and it's also in the book, The Patient's Playbook. Then here's the third step. And again, people are reluctant to do it, but it's important, and you can do it, and it matters. Pick at least three physicians who've risen to the top of your, of your list there and schedule appointments to interview them. That's right, not to get treated by them, but to interview them just the way you'd interview somebody who you're considering hiring uh, to be a babysitter for your child, to be a colleague at work, to do anything for you. This is among the most important professional relationships you can have, and it needs to be done with the same sort of thought and care that every other meaningful relationship deserves. Some doctors will insist on getting paid for the interview, so it might be a few hundred dollars. Do it because it's a good investment. Others recognize the importance of it and will welcome you. And I'll tell you this. If you go through that process and you do those interviews, from that moment forward, the physician you pick will see you as somebody who's different, someone who's a sophisticated consumer, who cares about their health and well-being, who values the relationship with their professionals. And for all time, that will make a difference in how they treat you. Interesting. You know, just we, my husband and I had a, a very interesting situation when I was pregnant with my last daughter, and I had a wonderful OBGYN, really liked her a lot, but she didn't practice at the hospital where I wanted to mm. deliver my baby. Yeah. So I had to find a new OBGYN, and my husband and I ended up, and, and I don't know, we just did this by the seat of our pants. We decided we were going to go to the hospital maternity room or area, and which we did, and we talked to several different nurses and asked them who who would be the best OBGYN at this hospital that we could, and all of them gave us the same name, which we found really interesting. Turned out to be absolutely the most wonderful OBGYN I've ever had. She was fantastic. Um, but <laughs> that, it's, it, that is nothing short of brilliant. Kudos well, for you. The I, nurses I, 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 know. They the do know. know. They do indeed know. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I, we were just lucky in, in that regard. But uh, you also talk about, in addition to finding a great primary care physician, 
you talk about the importance of developing a support team and how these people can support you during an illness, what kinds of skills a great support team or quarterback should have, and and how to have the conversation with someone that you'd like to enlist as your quarterback. Can you talk a little bit about that, too? Certainly. You know, if you get a tough diagnosis, nobody, nobody should have to go through a tough diagnosis alone. It's really too hard. So what I encourage everyone to do is think about it in advance of that fateful day coming. Think about who you would want among your friends, loved ones, neighbors, people at your place of worship. Everyone has people in their lives who care about them and would like to do it. So I encourage everybody to think about who that should be and what the role should be. And we go through it in the patient's playbook. There are several very, very important roles for that advocate to serve. One is to be the coordinator, to make sure that all of the logistics are getting set up. Perhaps another person in your life is a terrific researcher, that person in college who is always in the library, that person should become your researcher. Somebody else might be tremendously organized who can be the person who makes sure that all of your medications are refilled, to make sure that you've got the durable medical equipment you need, that test results are coming back. And then there's that other role that the advocates need to play, which is helping you stay positive and forward-looking. You know, many of us are blessed in life to have someone in our lives who as soon as they call and you say, hello, they say, what's wrong? They are so in touch with you that they can detect the timber of your voice and know there's something out of whack. And they know the exact words to say, the exact actions to do to get you back on track. And that's the person you should bring on board to provide you the psychological support that you're going to need when you're battling a tough illness. That may be one people, one person, two or three different people. It may be a composite. And what I encourage people to do is given the likelihood that each of us is going to confront at least one significant medical issue during our lives, think in advance about who you would select to support you through it. It might be your spouse, a parent, child, cousin, and then take the time to sit down and talk to them about it before that day comes. And in the patient's playbook, we do role modeling of how that conversation might go. And what you'll find is that when you do have that conversation with someone, your relationship will be strengthened forever. That person will be so grateful that you thought of them in that context. And if the day comes when you need to activate that relationship, your bond will be enduring. I have had, among the many, many privileges in my life, I have served that role for hundreds and hundreds of people over many decades, over many states and time zones, and many different diagnoses. And I can remember each and every one of those people. And I have a bond with each of them that is so deep and so strong that every time I see one of these people, we have a good long hug and we shed a couple of tears. It really mm -hmm. becomes a beautiful thing. You know, one of the things that you also talk about in your book are the three steps you need to take when you do get that serious diagnosis. Um, and you outline a lot of wonderfully helpful information. And for those of our listeners who perhaps have a friend or a relative that this may be happening to or maybe they've had a serious challenge or, as you say, it, can, it will happen to all of us probably at some point in our lives, Let's talk about those three steps, what to do when a serious illness strikes. And the first step that you talk about in your book is immersion. Can you tell us what you mean by immersion and some of the recommendations that you would have about how to go about immersing yourself in the proper way? So the first thing to do is make sure you become fully knowledgeable about what's going on. So the Internet you know, has you know, lots of unbelievably helpful information, and other stuff that's a bit loony out there, right? That's the internet. We all know that. <laughs> yeah. And people kind of get intimidated. And it can be very intimidating. It can be depressing because people have crazy things online. But my view is the internet becomes an incredibly valuable resource for people who are battling a tough diagnosis. 
there are so many wonderful resources that can educate patients about their disease in lay-friendly, user-accessible language. So, for example, you know, we, are, we Americans are a wonderfully philanthropic society. We have so many disease-specific philanthropies for every disease, no matter how rare. I was working with a patient earlier in the day who had an extraordinarily rare disease for which there may be a couple of hundred cases ever reported in the history of medicine, and lo and behold, there's a disease-specific philanthropy for even that disease. Huh. And most of these philanthropies have information available for newly diagnosed patients or patients that have been on the journey for a while, and many of them even have individuals who are available to help you on chat lines um, or on phone calls who are highly trained, probably have someone, if not themselves, who've been diagnosed with the condition, who are waiting for you to call because their life's mission is to help you. And I would encourage you to give them that opportunity. So PANCAN, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, has a terrific amount of information available and very highly trained experts to help guide patients through it. The Prostate Cancer Foundation has the same thing. Komen for the Cure does that for breast cancer. The ALS Therapy Development Institute does that. There are so many resources. So that's just one thing. The other thing you can do, and we go through all of these resources, they're available at thepatientsplaybook.com. In addition to the disease-specific philanthropies, um, there are things like the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, nccn.org. If you've been diagnosed with cancer, it's got to be your first stop. It's a group of 25 of the preeminent cancer centers in the world who've come together and developed very specific guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of all of the major cancers. They have them available at, at, at the clinician level for physicians and at the patient level in English and in Spanish. They're all free of charge. They're done in an unbiased way. They're empirically based. They're very credible. And they're free to everybody. All you need to do is know about it, go online and download it, and then you'll have a legitimate basis to understand what that group of experts thinks are the standards for treatment so that you can walk into your oncologist's office and have an informed and intelligent conversation about what you're going to do to defeat the disease. So there are so many resources like that. I could take all day going through them. <laughs> and... You were saying earlier, and before we got on the air, that things are just, especially in, in the treatment of cancer, things are just changing so quickly, so much interesting research that's, that's happening. Does that kind of website, is all of that information just as up-to-date as you can possibly get? It really is, although it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, the good news here is it is almost impossible to stay absolutely current across all of the cancer diagnostics and therapeutics. It's changing almost on a week-by-week -week basis. It is absolutely explosive, which is why if you're diagnosed with cancer and it's a tough cancer that you're battling, it is so important to get to a top academic medical center and be treated by an oncologist who's at the cutting edge of research. And there's a way to find them, and it's actually very simple, online, and free of charge to everybody. Let me tell you what it is. It's a website called expertscape.com, and we reference it on my website, patientsplaybook.com. What these guys have done is nothing short of brilliant. They've taken the past 10 years of all medical literature, and they've organized it by disease and organized it by authors. So if you've been diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer, you can go on to expertscape.com, put in pancreatic cancer, push enter, and in an unmeasurably short period of time, you'll get a report back that will give you the identities of the most proficient authors on pancreatic cancer, the people that have been doing the best research. And if you happen to live in Minnesota or New York or Florida, you can just push the button for that state, and it will constrain the search to that state, and you'll be very quickly able to identify the physicians and hospitals who are doing the cutting-edge research and will be most knowledgeable about it. And, you know, we as professionals at private health management, where we get retained by people of means from around the world 
to get them through the toughest medical issues. Um, what we see all of the time is when you get to the very top physicians, they have access to information that others don't because they serve as the editorial board for the major journals, so they see the studies months before they're available to the physician community. They're involved in the studies. They see the early results. They spend their time doing it. And I have to tell you, when I've been on those phone calls with these very, very top physicians at the major institutions, guiding patients to the best care, it is so gratifying, it is so satisfying, and it is so reassuring to the patient because they know they're getting the very best. So I'm assuming, Leslie, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but if, if let's say in your community you find out who the, the top cancer specialist is for your particular kind of cancer, can you assume correctly that that specialist would necessarily know who is doing the cutting-edge research in that area? Or do you really need to go to a website like this to be absolutely sure that you're accessing the most up-to-date and helpful information? Well, you can, you know, I, you know, cancer's a tough diagnosis. Once it's there, it, it's kind of the most important thing that's happening in your life. Yeah. So I would encourage people to follow the guidance in the patient's playbook, to go online and educate themselves, as well as to meet with the most accomplished and prolific research physicians in their community on that disease. And if you do both of those things, your instincts will engage, and you will, I guarantee you, come away after a couple of those interviews, particularly when you're informed by having done your own research, you will come away with a very clear sense of who the right person should be to manage your care, and you're going to be right because you'll then be in what I call the no mistakes and you have done all the work you can do. And when you do that, your instincts will engage, your intuition will take control, and you'll know what to do. And step two that you talk about uh, in what to do when a serious illness strikes is getting a correct diagnosis. And, you know, you shared earlier about your father uh, and the, the incorrect diagnosis that, that he had originally, what are the, some of the questions you can ask your doctor to be sure your diagnosis is correct, and what else should you do? Yeah, it's so important. We see diagnostic error all the time, and it's very, very disappointing because everyone assumes that diagnoses are always accurate, and it's just not the case. At MD Anderson, you know, they report 10 to 20% of the cases that come there have inaccurate or incomplete diagnoses. Our data are about the same, and that's mm-hmm. for cancer. So it's so important to get an accurate and definitive diagnosis. So we recommend to everyone who's been diagnosed with cancer that you have the biopsy tissue independently reread at a different facility by someone who's a pathologist who just focuses on that condition. Mm. And it sounds like, oh, that's going to be burdensome and expensive. It is neither. It's a bit of an administrative hassle, not a burden, and it may cost a few hundred dollars. That's not to say that that's a small amount of money, but what's at stake is your life, Mm -hmm. which is worth more than any amount of money. So that's what we recommend for cancer patients. For other patients, particularly those with complicated orthopedic conditions, my gosh, the diagnostic error we see on back pain is off the charts. It's 40 to 50%. We just had a patient last week, a delightful woman um, in her 40s who'd had three very major back surgeries, was in debilitating pain, on opiates, was in terrible, terrible shape, crying nonstop all day, battling to keep her pain under control. She was recommended to have a huge surgery fusing her entire spine from her neck uh, to her buttocks. As major a back surgery as you could have, and it turned out that they had misdiagnosed the cause of her pain. What she needs is about six weeks of physical therapy, and we think she's going to be just fine, and that if she were to have that procedure, she would have probably been in pain for the rest of her life and disabled. 
So it's so, so important to challenge the diagnosis, to be respectful of whatever the incoming is, but to make sure that it is independently confirmed by somebody with specific expertise in exactly, exactly that diagnosis. And step three you talk about is treatment. Could you share yes. some guidelines in that area? So there, there's no realm of knowledge more complex than human biology and no realm of knowledge um, that is moving more fast than biomedical research. And as a result of that, we believe very, very deeply that patients get better outcomes when they're treated by experts who are an inch wide and a mile deep. You want to be seen by someone who just does what you have. It's not the only thing they do, it's the principal thing they do. So there's data on this, and we talk about it in the patient's playbook. It turns out that if you have prostate cancer, the most commonly diagnosed cancer in men, and you have surgery, the return of disease for men who've had surgery by physicians who have done less than 100 is about 25%. That's a huge rate. And for those who've had surgery by doctors who've done more than 1,000 and have perfected the procedure, the return of disease is about 7%. Mm. So simply by asking a single question, doctor, how many of these have you done? If the number is more than 1,000, you should feel comfortable. If it's less than 100, my strong recommendation is to say, Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I look forward to having lunch with you at some point, but I really think I need to get treated someplace else. Thank you. Can I go back to the back surgery for a minute? Because the statistics you provided just sort of blew me away, and I'm particularly curious because we have a very close friend who has had two back surgeries and has like what you described, has been in tremendous pain for a year. And she is now getting treatment specifically at a neck and back clinic that specializes in dealing with trying to help the muscles surrounding that have contracted around the the back pain. I'm just curious, what, what else can you share with us? Because back pain seems to be such, I mean, it's it's almost like it's, just one of the most prevalent things you hear people talking about. Can you share a little bit more with us about that whole back surgery, back pain area? What what kinds of guidelines would you give us on that? Yeah, back pain is a very, very complex arena. First of all, the back is so complex that there is very little correspondence between the things that show up on imaging and the symptoms of a patient which is to say if you were to take 100 random people walking by, you know, the corner of your street and imaged all of them, having no idea if they ever had any back pain, you'd probably find 20 25% who had all of these terrible findings on imaging, and there'd be about 20 25% who had recent episodes of significant back pain, and they'd probably be very different people, maybe 50% overlap between them. So the first thing you need to do is know that that the physical, the clinical diagnosis is much more important in the first instance than the imaging. Second thing, for certain kinds of back pain, surgery is remarkably effective. But if it is not one of those very specific diagnoses, surgery is not only ineffective, it is counterproductive. So what one needs to do is make sure that you go to multiple spine experts some of whom might be orthopedic surgeons, who believe in their trade. They've trained to do it. They've become very expert at it. They've seen the good results through their own eyes, but they may not be as believing in the data about the overall relative benefits, but see other physicians who focus on physical medicine and other technologies to manage back pain. Those are really, really important things. And in virtually every instance, virtually every instance, it makes so much more sense to try conservative modalities before you start with surgery. You know, I'm thinking of a terrific guy we took care of in, uh, on the East Coast who had had 
annoying back pain for about nine months. He was working really hard, and the pain was getting in the way of his capacity to work. He'd been to a number of doctors, a very, very smart guy. And there's one doctor in particular who was strongly advocating surgery. And there was one particularly bad day where he was in a lot of pain, and the doctor called him that. They said, all right, well, let's just do the surgery. We'll get this thing done. Knowing in his gut wasn't the right thing to do. And from the moment he, re- he recovered from that surgery, he has had debilitating pain. He would do anything to get back at the pain level that he was in before he had that surgery. And the surgery was such a major procedure that it's going to be extremely difficult to get him back to the condition he was in the minute before they put him under for that surgery. Mm. And that happens in back pain. So I don't want to scare people, but you need to be extremely vigilant, extremely cautious, and if there's any way that you can deal with trying the tincture of time, let Mother Nature see if she can fix it, as well as physical therapy, injections, and other modalities, boy, I would strongly encourage doing that. I have to say that I have become such a fan of physical therapists and <laughs> uh, what they can do. Uh, I had some knee problems a number of years ago, and the first reaction that I had from the doctor was surgery. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I that scared me quite a bit. And as we talk further, toward the end of the conversation, he said, well, and you could also try physical therapy. And I thought, okay. <laughs> That's us go there. Much. Yeah, let's let's try that first. And sure enough, I mean that cleared it up. And um, yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting process. Well, I'm I can't begin too. to tell you how many times I have heard that story. Really, countless, countless times. When you yeah. can find the strength to resist the quick surgical intervention, um, physical therapy can be unbelievably successful. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping you might be open to this, Leslie, and I don't mean to throw you a curveball here, but in part three of the book, when you talk about when serious illness strikes, you talk about your own situation that happened when you had a serious healthcare crisis a few years ago when you were diagnosed with an endocrine disease. Would you mind sharing that story with our listeners and how you went about making sure that you got the treatment that was most effective? Sure. It's a little hard for me, but, you know, I'm happy to do it if it helps people. So I was, some years ago, I had some anomalous blood tests, and it turned out I had a very rare condition called primary hyperparathyroidism. There are four little glands around the thyroid. They have nothing to do with the thyroid, thyroid, but they're called parathyroids because they're near the thyroid. And they basically control um, the calcium level in the blood. And I had an elevated... PTH levels and elevated calcium, which meant that some of my parathyroids were locked in an on position, secreting too much hormone, leaching calcium out of my bones, and giving me excess calcium in my blood, which was causing fatigue and all kinds of of complications. And when I got the diagnosis, frankly, I was really scared because I knew that it's a potentially very, very serious diagnosis. And I'm the go-to guy for everyone I know and everyone they know when they get sick. So um, I have nobody to turn to other than myself. Mm -hmm. So I had one of those good long talks with myself. (laughs) You've had those? Yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, I have to become my own patient. And I have to do this because I know what to do and I just have to do it. So I went through all of the things I teach in the patient's playbook, identified the single preeminent um, endocrinologist on the disease, a guy by the name of John, Dr. John Bilizekian in New York, who has studied more patients than anyone else on it. I got an appointment with him. We came. I, I, I sat with him for an hour and a half. We had a very sophisticated discussion. He concluded what I had concluded, that I needed a very specialized surgery, and we talked through who the very best surgeon in the world was to do that. And it was a terrific surgeon at Yale New Haven, the chairman of surgery by the name of Rob Udelsman. So I made an appointment to see him. Um, I came all the way. I live in California. I flew to New York to get diagnosed. I flew to New Haven for the surgery. 
I met with Dr. Udelsman. He interviewed me for a few minutes. He said, all right, so you come from California. You got to John Belazakian. You got to me. No one's botched your surgery. He took his glasses off. He looked at me and he said, so who are you? How did you know to do that? And my <laughs> wife was with me. And she burst into laughter. She said, sweetheart, you have to tell them who you are and what you do. He said, nobody does that. I said, yeah, this is what I do. That's how I found you. So I had the surgery the next day, and it turned out that my case was an extremely rare presentation of this condition. Maybe 2 to 3% present the way my case did. It ended up being a very complex surgery that took three times as long as was anticipated because of that complexity. And I am so grateful that I followed my own teachings because that doctor that day cured me. And had I not been with him, I sincerely doubt whether I would have been cured by anyone. And I probably would have had to have at least one more surgery, which is far more complicated than the one that I had gone through. So if I ever had any doubts about what I teach, (laughs) that removed them. And you don't know... You don't know if you're going to be that person. No. That's why you need to always go through this process. Always be careful. Thank you, Leslie, for sharing that. I appreciate that. And, you know, you quote another eye-opening statement. There are a lot of eye-opening statements in your book, but one of them is that the procedures you receive when you get sick can have more to do with your zip code and the medical approach of the hospitals in your area than with your actual illness. Could you tell us more about this? And and there was a report from the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice that related to this. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's one of these other statistics that I'm certain is right and is just stunning and shocking. It is. I've been doing this for decades, and every time I reflect on that, I'm shocked yet again anew. (laughs) And the reason is, so they've done very thoughtful studies, and most of this comes out of a very sophisticated research group at Dartmouth, where they've studied the incidence of particular medical interventions by capture areas so they can do differential rates of utilization. And what they've demonstrated pretty persuasively is that to some degree, particularly on, 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 issue, on, on procedures which are, um, for which there's disagreement about when they can be done and judgment involved, the volume of of physicians and hospitals doing the procedure dramatically changes the number of procedures that get done. So if there are physicians, if there are more um, joint replacement surgeons in the community, you're going to end up with more joints being replaced, having nothing to do with changes in the incidence of the need. And that's pretty shocking. Indeed. Well, one of the other things that I thought was fascinating was that you referenced that that one top oncologist that you spoke with said that the biggest problem in the healthcare system in this country is communication. And the points of concentration where you look for potential communication problems are the handoffs. Can you talk a, a little bit about what you mean by handoffs and what we as good consumers should be looking for in this regard? Sure. It's kind of like automobile accidents generally happen at intersections. You're going one place to another. That's where it happens. And that happens in medicine as well. It is such a complicated service that happens in medicine that it's important to be very sensitive to the transition, the handoff from one venue of care to another. Whether you come into the emergency room, you have to make sure they know who you are, what your diagnoses have been, the medications you have, the allergies, everything about you, and what the mechanism of injury is and why you're there. And if you get moved from the emergency room to a bed on the floor, well, you need to make sure that they've gotten not most, but all of the information that's come from the emergency room. And when you get discharged from the hospital, you have to make sure that the physicians who will be handling you outside the hospital know what your diagnosis was, know what the treatment is, know what to look for, know who to call if there's a problem. And the healthcare delivery system is not nearly as well equipped to manage and coordinate those kinds of communications as it should be. And that's, well, that's why great. it's the responsibility of the patient to do it. 
Thank you, and that's a wonderful note to to leave on. I want to thank you so much for your time with us tonight. You've provided some wonderful information, and I know there are a lot of listeners out there who are going to be very grateful for the information you've provided. Thank you so much, Leslie. It's been my privilege. Thank you. You're welcome. And I want to invite our listeners to join us on January 3rd for our guest Chris Taylor. Chris will help us understand the importance of finding our true purpose and help us begin that process so we can enjoy the satisfaction that comes when our life activity is centered on that true purpose. Thank you so much for being with us tonight and stay well.